Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Politicana. Today we are on episode 84. My name is Tyler and of course, as always, I am with Pratik and Nick. So starting with Pratik this week, the 4th of July week, how are you doing today? I'm good. I've been hearing fireworks literally all day today. It's intense. I feel like, you know, COVID ended and people had to like take out as many fireworks as they could to lay out all that steam from that time they missed sitting in their homes. Nick, what's up, man? How's it going? Freedom is in the air, beer is in people's mouths, and steak is on the grill. Today has been a good day for me, for the country, and for the entire world for the United States to be celebrating this fantastic day. Very nice. Well, so we are recording this on the night, the late night of July 3rd, so July 4th tomorrow. Um, you're right, it's July 4th, celebrating the nation, but unfortunately, our first story is discussing how most Americans say the nation is on the wrong track. So according to the AP NORC poll, the poll designed uh, to be representative of the U.S. population showed that the national dissatisfaction is bipartisan. Among the 1,000 residents in the poll conducted uh, 92% Republicans, 78 percent Democrats say that the country is headed in the wrong direction. Since last month, the percentage of Democrats saying the country is headed in the wrong direction rose from 66 percent. Um, so this poll is showing uh, 39 percent of Americans approve of Biden's leadership overall, while 60 percent disapprove. 69 percent of Americans said they disliked Biden's handling of the economy. 53 percent of Americans approved of Biden's policies regarding the handling of the COVID pandemic. And 62 percent of Americans opposed Biden's handling of gun policy, while only 36 percent approved of it. Um, so what do you guys make of this? Obviously, it is a celebratory mood. We do hear the fireworks going off. Uh, you may actually hear it going off during the show, people. We apologize for that. Uh, but still, people are angry. They're not happy with the direction of the nation, Republican or Democrat. So obviously something's not going wrong. Um, so are you guys uh, getting the same sense as the people in this polling? Well, obviously everything costs a lot more this year. And I think that's one thing that stands out is if you listen to any news segment on any sort of cable news network, what you'll oftentimes hear is that Americans are spending a lot of money early on in the summer as people are getting out to their families, their friends, for the holidays, but that later in the summer and then into the fall, your usual budget that would last you through the year is going to really start hitting you hard in terms of pushing the outer limits. So unfortunately, I think the number is that your uh, 4th of July festivities, like a cookout, would cost something like 11% more than it did last year. Although if you make a lot of strawberries, apparently that's cheaper this year. So uh, for any vegans who only consume strawberries at their 4th of July barbecues, then I guess it's an okay year. But otherwise, people are spending a lot more money than they usually yeah, the do. The fruititarians so, are very happy at the moment. Oh, I bet that's the word for it. I, everyone's got a word these days. But uh, in any case, I think that's what it comes down to ultimately is just in terms of the economic feeling and anxiety in the country right now, that's the number one thing. Obviously, we have all these other social issues, but like we've said, those are a little fluid from time to time, but the one persistent thing is the economy. Pratik? So some of us are vegetarians, so for, even for vegetarian people, the cost My of, bad, I'm sorry, Pratik. I, I wasn't trying to call him out. I, yeah, yeah. I just thought it was oh. funny. But um, for a lot of vegetarian people, a lot of prices have gone up for a lot of organic foods, a lot of foods that, you know, generally are, you know, made for vegetarian people. That kind of stuff has become a ripoff over the last, like, year or so. 
I think that's basically the state of the economy too. It's like the cost of everything has gone up, and I think gas prices going up has led up, led to a lot of other things going up as well because the cost of you know delivering products from one place to another has risen, and you have the supply shortage and people cost more. So I think that's the main thing here. I don't really know exactly like all the other stuff if like any tr if Republican would have done anything different like COVID. I think, you know, during the election promises and stuff, it was like, how is Biden going to be completely different from Trump? And it hasn't really been that much different in terms of COVID. Policies are still relatively the same, but that, but people just seem to somehow feel more positively about how COVID is being handled over the other things. I think all the other stuff is kind of self-explanatory. I've said this on the show too, when it comes to gun policy, that there's a lot more people out there that are gun owners that are more pissed off about democratic talking points, discussing that they want to ban certain weapons and certain things like that. And this last legislation was probably the most positive legislation you could get out of that to try to be bipartisan on both sides of the aisle. So that's my thoughts. I think the economy is really bad right now. I don't really see Democrats having many major wins during the midterms because the economy is so bad. And I think the main causes of that are just how economic policies have been handled by this administration that have been, you know, not great. And especially some of that stuff has led to the higher inflation prices too. Yeah. And then Biden comes out and said he wants to give a gas tax holiday for the holidays, the fourth weekend. And guess what? Nothing happens. So just broken promises. People are upset that they're already paying so much and there's no sign of relief to be had. Um, at this point, just looking at the numbers, uh, numbers of this poll, everyone's pissed off. But you're right. How much of it is due to COVID? And would the Republicans have done any different? I'm not quite sure. Like, the, So Americans are saying 69% of Americans say they dislike his handling of the economy. Um, what exactly about the economy do you think that Americans are pissed off about? I think, see, somebody that's a Republican, somebody that's an economic voter, I'll just lay out a few things. So like, if this was Trump, the administration would have done a lot of stuff differently. I think with Biden, he has a lot of pro... He's like Trump has a lot more pro-employer and pro-oil and gas policies compared to this administration, which would have caused things, a little bit, some of the stuff to be different. So, like, obviously, when it comes to Biden, Biden came in talking about how he's going to raise capital gains tax, how he's going to corporate, raise corporate income tax, he's going to raise payroll tax, he's going to make people that are rich pay more in taxes if they make a certain... or over a certain tax bracket... I think that's the main stuff. And then that kind of trickles down a little bit too because Biden had a lot more welfare policies, especially with COVID. So there was a lot more money being provided through unemployment benefits, especially in a lot of states around the country where a lot of people were incentivized to stay at home. And if they made a certain amount, the government would pay that amount back. And then they also provided a lot of child tax credits, which led to a lot of um, you know, different employment brackets becoming different because a lot of people that have a lot more kids were not coming to work anymore because they were getting made more to stay at home. I think some of that stuff would have been different under Trump. And obviously, if Trump was there as president right now, you would have much more, you know, fracking going on, especially with oil and gas. You would have more of an incentivized production level where they would try to find more more ways to increase production. They tap into more reserves than they have been doing right now. With Biden, he's looking at reserves that they already have, and he's trying to use their um, he's trying to use the stuff that we have we already know about. While with Trump, you would be fracking more and trying to find different places where they can frack more oil. Look, so I think. 
Yeah. Y- you're right about that, but we have 78% of Democrats saying the country's headed in the wrong direction. They're still disapproving of what Biden's doing. So I, in, in the case of if you're a Democrat, why are you pissed off right now? Like, what is Biden doing that they they should be doing better? I think it's a lot of that other stuff. I think, you know, when the economy is bad, I mean, inflation impacts everybody. If you can't find people, there's Democrats that are employers too. There's Democrats that are business people and there's Democrats that are employees. The problems that you're having right now are, you know, face nationwide. I don't think that they would have wished for the policies to be any different. Like, hasn't Biden enacted policies that most Democrats would have found reasonable? I don't know. Because if you had more progressive Democrats, a lot of those people would have been more like anti Biden's economic policies. Seventy eight percent of Democrats, not you know, we're not yeah. even talking about friend we're talking a vast majority here. Yeah. I don't know exactly. I think I mean those for those people, they're probably just angry about how the economy has been. And I don't see as I said, I think if Trump was president, the economy wouldn't be as bad. It would still be bad on a lot of fronts. Like you would still have supply shortages and all that kind of stuff. But the consumer confidence level is generally higher among Republican presidents and Democratic presidents because they're seen as being more employer friendly than the opposite side. I don't think that really changes much. And I don't really know why it's a big case. But again, I'm not a Democrat, so I don't really know. Nick, what's your thoughts, man? You're a Democrat. Ordinarily, you could say day to day, those Democrats are thinking, OK, on the social issues, I'm glad we're in, we're in charge. But when it comes to stuff like gas, I don't think there's really that much difference. I think both sides really hate it when gas prices are high. I don't think any Democrat is sitting there cheering the fact that gas prices are high. Maybe some people try to defend the president like myself and say, look, there are other forces at play here. It's not just Joe Biden. Like, for example, if Russia didn't decide to invade Ukraine, they wouldn't be as high as they are right now. And I get that there are other factors and you'd say, well, we should increase domestic production. It has been increasing in terms of the refinery capacity. But all that aside... Um, the, the facts are that it's not as much as it was under Trump's uh, first two years in office. You know, when COVID hit, Biden is producing more oil or more oil is being produced domestically under Biden than under Trump when COVID was really in its full swing in 2020. Right. But that doesn't matter to anyone because gas prices are high right now. They weren't high then. And, you know, Biden's in office. So that's why you see all the stickers about, you know, you know, if, if you voted for Joe Biden, you owe me gas money, something like that, right? I saw that the other day as I was walking around on one of my neighbor's cars. Like, that's that's just how it is. So rambling aside, I think, like you were saying, the economy is such a universal cross-cutting thing that when you look at what happened with the new Democrats like Bill Clinton or the new labor in Britain in the late 90s, early 2000s, it was the same type of thing where, okay, sure, social policies... There's some alignment, but fundamentally, the economy wasn't working out. And I think that's going to drive a shift in the Democratic Party this next time around, where if we keep doing the same thing, it's not going to keep working. And it never looks good when your approval ratings are as low as Jimmy Carter in the 70s. Jimmy Carter is a good guy. I think everyone can agree he was probably the most moral, ethical president to ever be president. But at the same time, was the country doing so great under him? No, it wasn't. There were international well, scandals. Things are not going great domestically. Tyler, cut me well, off. Can you say he's the most moral president when things aren't going well? Because doesn't he have a more obligation to make sure that the economy is running well and all that? I really don't think the economy is up to the president. I really don't. I mean, Bill Clinton has this quote where he's like, are you effing kidding me? 
my reelection depends on what the Fed is doing with all this stuff, right? With what these numbers are. Like, that's what drove Bill Clinton absolutely nuts and why he focused on the economy think, so hard is because, yeah, go ahead. Pati. I think Cut the problem is, is or that, get in here. <laughs> sorry, save me. I think the problem is that when you say that it doesn't have to do, the president doesn't have that much to do with the economy, it's not always what the president does. It's the talking points that the party of the president and the president have during their elections, which kind of define what people think of the presidency. Like with Biden, like maybe Biden was a little bit more moderate. Like, I mean, this is me saying this. I'm a Republican. If I was a Democrat voting in that primary as a Republican, Biden would have probably been a better choice for me than Bernie. Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and all those people, because those people were just much more further left on all these issues. While with the economy, like the main thing is that they all kind of had the same exact goals. They were all going to raise taxes. They were all going to raise the minimum wage. They were all going to do certain things to reduce fracking in terms of oil and gas, because that was part of their party platform. And I think when it comes to taxes and when it comes to employment and when it comes to welfare and all this stuff, Republicans are always seen on that pro-employer side. They're not really pro-labor at all. And I think that's the thing that whenever things go bad, Democrats have that problem is that no matter what they do, Biden could be like the best economic president of all time. But the fact is that whenever those are your promises and that whenever people think of that, that automatically deflects on consumer confidence, the way people view the economy and the way people the view the way people view the presidency is always going to be somewhat slanted because that's what the party's positions are. So whenever things are going bad, they're naturally going to blame the party. It's kind of like the same thing when it comes to guns, like whenever anything happens and let's say Republicans in power and there's a bunch of gun shooting they're going to automatically be like, oh, this is because the Republicans don't do anything on guns. That's the same thing with Democrats on economic policy. And no matter what you do, Democrats are always going to be that party that has that slant. Even if Republicans and Democrats both spend a lot of money, Democrats will always get the push because they're the party that's all about, you know, increasing taxes and increasing welfare payments and increasing more different welfare programs, increasing the amount of aid you provide to people. The Republican Party is never going to be for those things. And I think that whenever these kind of things, when the economy is bad, all that stuff kind of makes them people say like, oh, this is because Biden's in office. And I mean, I, I'd be victim to that, too. Like, that's what we, I think, too, because, you know, I'm a Republican that we automatically assume those things. That's why we vote Republican. And then when things go bad, we automatically are like, well, this is why we didn't vote for Biden. If Biden wasn't there, the economy wouldn't be as bad. That's the thing, though. That's a good point. I just don't think there is a party of labor anymore in this country. It used to be the Democrats and try, how they tried to frame themselves. But let's be real. If you look at actual working class blue collar jobs, odds are if granted in cities, it's a little different. But if you are in rural or suburban America and you go and poll working class blue collar workers, they're going to be Republican. They're going to support Donald Trump like it, it. The Democrats are no longer the party of the labor, you know, big labor, working class, whatever. They lost that trust years ago and they've never regained it. Biden's doing his best to try to get that back. But unfortunately, like, really, you're going to have some guy in his 70s, like, reinvigorate the labor, you know, movement in this country. I mean, Bernie tried a little bit. Give him props for that. But um, I'm, I'm just not sure that, again, going back to my central point, I think, like you were saying, presidents set the tone. But in terms of actually achieving results, I do not think it is totally on the president to do that. 
And so for me, like, I'm going to blame Congress the way I usually do. <laughs> but um, ultimately, we are a free market capitalist economy. And you know what? If the private sector isn't doing well, then I'm not going to expect the government to shore up everything and then command and control, make sure everything runs smoothly. In terms of Fed policy, I totally agree. They should have done things differently. But hindsight is twenty twenty. And frankly, if you put me in that room and said, what should you do in terms of monetary policy? Yeah, what am I going to say to Janet Yellen? I, I would literally have nothing to say. But again, as we discussed on the show, the whole thing about inflation being tran- you know, transitory and all that, complete garbage. They miscalculated. And they should do something to fix it. But I don't think that's on Biden. I think that's more on the actual bureaucrats, which is unfortunate because it's like, who trusts the bureaucrats? Pretty much no one. But unfortunately, in this case, we kind of have to for things to get on the right track. Yeah, but those very same bureaucrats are the ones that are dictating the Democratic Party's platform. And Biden is mostly a figurehead that's not coming up with any ideas, not really standing for anything himself. He's kind of being told and fed what to believe, what to say, and what to do. And I think that's part of the frustration. It's like our president is a party right now. He's not an individual. It's a bunch of other people managing his affairs, deciding what he's going to say, and he simply goes out and says them. And I think people are frustrated that we don't actually feel like we have a leader at this point. We just have a a puppet. What if we turn into a parliamentary democracy? The world would end. Yeah, I don't know what to say to that. But speaking (laughs) of that... Pratik, are you kidding me? Dude, of course you know what to say. Every time we go on the show, you're like, you know what? What, whoever is the head of the party, they should just, you know, the party should get in line. Do what the people say. You should all vote the same. The Don't be an individual. Is... And that's exactly how it would be. You're like, oh, look, Biden's not being an individual. This is terrible. And it's like, that's what you advocate for every time. So what do you mean you don't know I, what to say? I that's don't like know what to say. <laughs> if you had a Republican who behaved the way that Joe Biden did, you would be so happy, Pratik. No, we, I, I actually disagree. Because I, I feel like uh, Pratik respected and liked Trump more than he would have some generic, like a Mitt Romney or something. And oh, like how Pratik loved Jeb Bush in the primary? <laughs> like that? Hey, but see, that's primary <laughs> politics. Primary politics are different from presidential yeah. politics. I think with primary politics, I want people that are normal. <laughs> primary politics is like dating. But president, that, that's, that's like getting married. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the president actually did do one thing, which is that um, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, the first black woman on the Supreme Court, has actually been confirmed and is now sitting on there. So now whenever there's another 6-3 decision where the liberal justices lose, she can now be part of that losing side, which is unfortunate, but at least she's in there. And, um, you know, everyone can blame RBG and they can blame Obama. I mean, I still remember when, you know, you, you kind of hear the rumblings of... You know, the Republicans refused to nominate anyone that Obama was putting mm-hmm. up. Or, sorry, they refused to allow the confirmation hearings to go through. It wasn't refusing to allow them to nominate. And I think part of it was Obama, again, just taking for granted that, hey, Hillary Clinton, you know, she's stemming up to the plate. And who are the Republicans going to field? We feel pretty good about this. So let's not fight too hard about it. I'm sure they fought a little bit, but it wasn't like the major stakes that we're dealing with now. And to be fair, that was a big thing in 2016. I mean, we all remember this on the show of how during the debates they kept saying and stressing, and Hillary Clinton gleefully would say, you need to vote for me because of the Supreme Court. You don't have to like what I stand for or what I believe in or my moral character. You need to vote for me because of the court. And now this people online are saying, or I guess the Democratic pundits are saying, 
look, we should have voted for Hillary. It's like, is that is that really the reason we should have voted for Hillary? I disagree with that. That's just me personally. However, you can't deny that it would have been very different if she had actually won, because now we're seeing that the three justices Trump put in are fundamentally altering some of these previous decisions, like abortion, and we'll see how the others go. I think this one of those things when it comes to politics, we've talked about this on the show before, but that's what all parties do. Like, Republicans finally took a stand for something. They usually fall apart after a little bit. Democrats are usually hardcore and as a unit when they fight for things. And that was one of those things is that whenever Trump was putting these justices in, when it was Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and um, Amy Coney Barrett, the Democrats were always a united front, being very anti whoever Republicans put up. And that's the same thing as whenever, you know, Democrats were in power and Republicans were really anti-Merrick Garland. But I think that's part of politics, though. And we always try to bring that up, but the fact is that that's what they do. And I'd be more surprised if they didn't do that because that's that's basically them taking a stand for what they need to do. And that's the problem with I have with my party. We have people like Mitt Romney to decide that, you know, who cares about my vote? I'm just going to support whoever i'm gonna be that rhino that switches sides and then be like yeah, that was the idiot that we voted for in 2012 as a unit as the gop but that's the thing is that that's our party politics and i think that's never gonna change that's my stance tyler you got anything when it comes to the supreme court um you know we, we've touched on uh kentanji brown jackson quite a bit i mean just like you said the party in power is going to vote for the justice they feel will support the policies they want to get enacted and make the decisions they want to be made so yeah that's just politics as usual so that's all i got but moving right. on we're gonna be going to some actual impactful stuff the primary updates uh, that we had briefly discussed last week now we're diving into the results all right so primary updates wise colorado illinois new york oklahoma and utah all held primary elections this tuesday or this past Tuesday, and Mississippi and South Carolina had their runoff elections, while Nebraska had a special election to replace former Representative Jeff Fortenberry, which was won by Republican Mike Flood. So I'm going to like briefly go through this. It was like eight different states that had intense primaries. So I'm going to try to sum it up as quickly as I can. So if people want to understand the big takeaways, that's what I'm going to do. So Colorado became the second state where Republican primary voters resoundingly rejected President Donald Trump's picks on Tuesday after Georgia because they chose a lot more moderate nominees for key offices over candidates endorsed by former President Donald Trump. Many of these other states, Donald Trump has been winning. Whoever Donald Trump endorses are generally winning the nomination, even if establishment senators, even if Republican Party or the RNC are endorsing other people, whoever Trump's endorsing are generally winning. However, Colorado was an exception. And obviously, if you read any of the news articles, they try to hype up how great Colorado is because, you know, they voted against Donald Trump. But that's the story with Colorado. And their state representative, Ron Hanks, who Trump endorsed, lost his bid to party Senate nomination to Joe O'Day, who was a longtime pro-abortion rights Republican who opposed the ruling to overturn Roe v. Wade. And he will face Democratic Senator Michael Bennett in November. While elsewhere, Trump saw major victories in his message. In Mississippi, Trump backed Michael Guest, 
won his election. And in Oklahoma, Trump endorsed incumbent Senator James Lankford, easily defeated a GOP primary challenge from an evangelical pastor who was strongly opposed to Donald Trump's behavior in the 2020 election. And now elsewhere, in New York, Democratic Governor Kathy Hochul, who became governor after Andrew Cuomo resigned, easily fought off primary primary challenges from the left and center, and she will face Representative Lee Zayden, who won the GOP's nomination against a field that included Andrew Giuliani, who's the son of Rudy Giuliani. In Utah, incumbent Senator Mike Lee defeated opponents Becky Edwards and Ali Issam overwhelmingly. And lastly, in Illinois, Trump endorsed Darren Bailey overwhelmingly defeated a field of six to win the GOP gubernatorial bid, and he will face incumbent Democratic Governor J.B. Pritzker. So that's my primary updates. What are y'all's thoughts? Pratik, fantastic election updates is always another update because I know you like to sing uh, former President Trump's praises is that we have uh, photo and video evidence of not just his influence over how these elections have been playing, but his influence over driving of uh, Secret Service cars on January 6th. And one of his uh, one of the people in, in the circle said this this chick, this lady said that the president she heard tried to grab the steering wheel away from the Secret Service guy to go back and, uh, you know, basically participate in what was going on on January 6th. And now, on the other hand, there's they um, I, I think some mainstream press ended up quoting another Secret Service agent who said, no, that's preposterous. There's no way. The president is simply too fat and physically unfit to be able to take the wheel away from someone like that, which I thought was pretty funny. And I would say I'm a little sympathetic to that. I mean, we have, you know, him eating so many Big Macs over the years and having McDonald's catered at the White House that I fully believe the story that he was being driven back for some McDonald's as opposed to actually participating in the riot. I think whether it's, you know, between food and power, I think they're one and the same. And if he would have gotten just one more Big Mac, I think he could have won the election. But um, I think that just goes to show his lasting influence, which is, you know, we'll talk about him on the show. Obviously, his ideas are still popular. You take away all the personal baggage of Trump as a person and the candidates espousing his same ideas do well. Like Pratik was saying, his endorsement sort of matters. I get that. But again, when the primary happens... I just don't see how anyone with Trump's message would be able to go up against the man himself and say, look, I am here because of Donald Trump and then run against Donald Trump. I just don't know how that's a winning message for anyone to say, but we'll see. Crazier things have happened. That's a good point. And maybe we should briefly be talking about the poll that talked about how Biden and Trump aren't wanted by people in the next election. In 2024, people aren't really looking to get the same thing we've had over the past eight years. They don't want that. They want something new. So, Pratik, you want to take that story now? Yeah, so Axios had a poll where it said most voters don't want President Biden or former President Donald Trump on the ballot in 2024, according to a new Harvard Center for American Political Studies and Harris Poll. So in the in the results, Biden polls show that seven in 10 people polled said Biden should not seek a second term, where 45 percent said Biden is a bad president, while 30 percent said he's too old. A quarter of people said it's time for change and 60 percent of respondents said they had doubts about Biden's fitness. While in, 2020, in, in the 2024 primary poll that was conducted within this um, poll, it said in a potential Democratic primary, 30% of Democrats surveyed said they would support Biden. 
Um, Vice President Kamala Harris polled at 18% and Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders was at 8%. And that's what we've seen with the Democratic polls is that they keep saying they don't want Biden, but Biden always wins in all the presidential primary polls. He's still up, even if his approval rating is really down over all the other people. And in terms of Trump, it's a little bit, this is about the same stuff where six in 10 voters say they didn't want Trump to run again. One in three polled said he would divide America. 36% said he's erratic, while 30% said Trump is responsible for the Capitol riot. So obviously, you know, some of the party lines and, you know, people that are voting based on that stuff. And in 2024 Republican primary poll, which was similar to the Democratic primary poll within their, you know, polling data, and it said in a potential GOP primary among Republicans, 56% said that they would vote for Trump in the primary. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis received 16% of the vote, while former Vice President Mike Pence polled at 7%. So obviously, this is between this is among Republicans and Democrats. So it doesn't necessarily say the whole full story, but because, you know, Mike Pence pulled at 7%, I don't know how many Republicans are going to support Mike <laughs> Pence after all this January 6th stuff. But hey, what are y'all's thoughts on all this? Mike Pence comes into office thinking he's going to be eligible to be president one day by being the VP to Trump. And then after all this, oh my God, he's such a stain on politics. But like, looking at this poll, we got 30% of people saying Biden is too old. And yet... 30% of people are 30% st of Democrats are still willing to vote for him in the in the primaries like they want him to win because there's no one else like there's such an absence of good options here and any other good options at least on the Republican side are espousing the same thing that Trump's saying as Nick was saying before so it's like where do you go from here we don't want the people we want they're too old they're unfit for office and we have no one to replace them and no one can replace them I think that's the main issue here too it's like as you said well I was joking about Mike Pence but you know, Mike Pence was always like, he was always that last candidate because socially conservative people now, because of all the stuff that has been going on in the Supreme Court, whether it's the Roe v. Wade rulings and even the stuff with him with guns, all of those people are generally going to support Donald Trump now. The argument is that all those justices that Donald Trump put there is the only reason why Republicans had a pro-life win in the last like six decades. They haven't never had any wins on this issue until now, and that's because of Donald Trump. So a lot of those votes are going to be won by Republicans and by Trump. And again, as Nick was saying, I don't know what's going to happen because you're not going to have anybody that's going to you know, give the Trump message saying that I'm here because of the great stuff Donald Trump did and do that against Trump. It doesn't make any sense. And I think that's the same thing with Democrats. Like they complain about Joe Biden all the time and about how bad Joe Biden is as a president. But whenever you pull him against all the other potential, uh, you know, primary contestants and in their primaries, they only had 26 people. Biden is always the winner. Like he wins all those people's votes. And when Biden doesn't run, it's Kamala Harris, who's literally the female version of Biden. So like you're in that situation where you're getting Biden or you're not getting anybody. You could complain about how bad Biden is or how bad Trump is, but if they're in the race based on polling data, they're going to be they're going to be the winners. There's not going to be any of the other potential candidates unless they decide not to run because they're too old. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Biden's kind of like vanilla ice cream. It's like, it's okay, but there are so many better options out there. What are we still doing <laughs> eating vanilla ice cream? You know what I mean? Nick, what's your thoughts? Depends on what it's uh, <laughs> coupled with, Tyler. But that's what I'm saying. Nice apple. I, I do love my pies. I like apple pie a lot, and vanilla just goes so well with apple pie. But again, on its own, on its own. See, you need a team behind yourself, okay? 
if the Senate is not playing ball, if if Joe Biden is the vanilla ice cream and the Senate is the apple pie, they're just unfortunately uh, they're they're not really mixing well together right now. There is no apple pie. The Senate does not exist for the Democrats, and so just vanilla on its own, like you were saying, it's a bit plain, it's a bit old, a bit boring, yeah. been done before. And, uh, yeah, hopefully new people run next time around. So speaking of the Supreme Court, Nick, you want to tell us about EPA and what's going on in the Supreme Court's ruling? Yeah, so the Supreme Court... Uh, the way you said that, the, EPA's the Supreme Court... <laughs> Sorry, go on. Hey, I was, I was fishing for time here as I refreshed myself on Section uh, 111D of the Clean Air Act. But, of course. Uh, so the Supreme Court... Basically, this I think it was West Virginia came before the court and was like, hey, look, EPA has this rule. It's from 2015 with the Clean Power uh, Plan, which the Obama administration tried to put in place to give EPA broader authority to regulate greenhouse gas emissions in this country. Greenhouse gas emissions are the ones that contribute to global warming. And so EPA comes in, it gets challenged in the courts, it gets smacked down in 2020. 2021, D.C. Circuit Court, something ends up going through and... Essentially, it's like, all right, is the EPA going to backdoor this? Are they going to have another way to get this done? Because much like a lot of Obama's environmental policy, Biden, if something had been kicked down in the Obama era, Biden is trying to pick it right back up. So that's what he does with this. And it goes up to the Supreme Court again, and they kick it back down again. And they basically say that, hey, the, the EPA, you can regulate individual power plants. Again, this this isn't totally dismantling EPA's authority. What this rule says is that EPA... You, under the Clean Air Act, can continue to regulate individual power plants and their emissions. However, you cannot take a systemic approach to this and basically group in a bunch of power plants and say, oh, look, we've got to shift from these, which could be like very polluting coal power plants. We've got to shift from these to natural gas or to wind or to whatever to address this issue, right? So it's basically saying you need to address things on an individual basis. You can't group them all together and then make these decisions as the EPA. Now, that is limiting in terms of our ability to um, reduce the amount of greenhouse gases, greenhouse gas emissions we have in the country. One of the big things that you'll end up finding in systems analysis is that when you are analyzing a system, generally you're not sure you're focused on some of the individual parts, but generally if you're doing a, an intense analysis, you're saying, how does the whole system function together? How does everything fit together? And if you are unable to regulate that entire system as a whole, it makes it a lot harder to end up limiting these bad effects, which in, our, in this case, it's pollution in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. But also, you could take a similar approach to sulfur dioxide or NOx, which is um, nitrogen oxide. And you, can, you could look at SOx, NOx, whatever, right? And you could say, all right, these things are bad. We want to limit this. I mean, I think under Bush, you know, SOx, so sulfur, that ended up being, or sulfur oxides ended up being reduced and whatever. So Democrats and Republicans sort of on board with this. But the Republicans and the oil companies think this just goes a little bit too far. And not the oil companies, sorry, because oil as a share of electricity generation, very low. But the fossil fuel companies, so coal, oil, natural gas, generally they're very opposed to this sort of stuff. And believe it or not, in states like Louisiana, in other states that produce a lot of fossil fuels, the lobbies in those states, when when the Supreme Court just kicked this back to the states and said, okay, you know, less federal controls over this, it's going to be up to the states a little bit more. 
When these states have so much of a heavy lobbying emphasis, especially in a state like Louisiana, you're never going to have anything done. And that's why it was important for the EPA to have this sort of authority to actually make a dent in some of these states that are just lagging behind everyone else. However, the market is going the way it's going. Fossil fuels are on the way out. It's not going to be instant in the electricity sector, but they are gradually, we're shifting from, again, we shifted from coal to natural gas. Natural gas is seen by some as a bridge fuel. However, further down the line, it's like, are we going renewables and battery storage? Are we going nuclear? Are we going with something else? What's the right energy mix? And so that's why this matters is because instead of EPA being able to allow to determine what is that right energy mix, now it's back on the marketplace. Now it's back on the states. And we'll see how that all takes us. That's how we've usually done things. So we're basically going the way we've always been going. And there's nothing new. Hmm. Well, it's interesting because you have even Justice Roberts coming out and saying capping carbon dioxide emissions at a level that will force a nationwide transition away from the use of coal to generate electricity may be a sensible solution to the crisis of the day, but it is not plausible that Congress gave EPA the authority to adopt its own such regulatory scheme in Section 111D. Um, so uh, basically he's saying that, yeah, this could be the, the right decision, and personally I think it's probably the best way to go about it, to look at it holistically, but he's saying that Congress didn't have the right to enact that. So who would have the right to enact that, I do think, you know? I think states. You have a state legislature, they would decide those things. And I think that's the that's how the Supreme Court has been going recently. Like, correct me if I'm wrong, Nick, but all their decisions are basically saying that we don't want this decided by the federal government. We want it to be decided by the states, and then states can have their say. You're right about the federal government. However, it's not... It's not even fully going back to the states. It's saying we do not trust the, the conservative Supreme Court does not trust the bureaucracy of the federal government to make these technical decisions. It is saying this is Congress's job to end up doing this. So in the original writing of the Clean Air Act, Congress basically anticipated that our understanding of air pollution is going to increase over time. Very reasonable assumption. So they said, let's give the EPA authority as things as our knowledge improves and as we find out more things and yes there were additional amendments to the clean air act it's not it wasn't one and done in the 70s there have been several amendments to it and additions to the law but fundamentally congress's approach for a long time has been and this is in aviation this is in transportation this is in water this is in i i guess it's the epa um that covers water but there, there's a lot of control like think of like any federal agency and generally, Congress's approach is, look, if we have a federal agency that specializes in something, we will trust the experts. It will sort of be a technocracy, a meritocracy. And we are going to delegate to you because us as legislators, we don't know the technical details of this. We don't know the difference between socks and knocks and whatever. You guys figure it out. We don't like that there's pollution. Reduce it. EPA, you have the authority to do that. And so what this is saying, the Supreme Court in this decision is saying, no, on certain things, EPA, you need to go back to Congress. You don't have the technical authority to do this on your own. You have to ask Congress to give you explicit permission to do this. And if you don't get that, you can't do it. And that's the way I understand this. That's fair. Yeah, well, because, because Congress is so good at making decisions. <laughs> exactly. That's that's the thing. They're not going to. And then we're not going to do anything. There you so. go. And, and you blame? Yeah. You blame Congress. You that's blame Congress. Family. But it's also sh such a shame that like a, a court 
gets to decide something that's clearly a scientific issue. You know what I mean? Like the fact that they know. have such a role think, in that. I think it's. I think the problem is that a lot of this stuff should be decided by the state, and a lot of these issues because each state is operated differently. But I but think hold when on, the federal government creates big mandates. It's stupid because some states are going to be fracking a lot more than other states. Some states are going to be having a lot more pollution problems in other states, and some states have more forest fires than other states. Like, look at California. If there is a mandate, it's going to impact some state like California. Obviously, California is a big blue state, you know, big blue state, liberal, you know, whatever. But California's decisions, if they have a state government, they should be deciding certain things that's going to impact them because whatever impacts them is going to be very different from what impacts North Carolina. Like, all of our states are very different. But certain issues require a holistic approach. Because for something like climate change, I mean, you having one state having certain laws and the other state having a different law, it's not very effective. And I actually feel a similar way about guns, for instance. Like, you have very hardcore gun restrictions in some areas, but not in others. What do you think is going to happen? Like, those laws are going to be completely ineffective, unless you were to mandate it more broadly. I think is more ineffective if you mandate it broadly, broadly because each state is going to operate differently and each state is going to be having different issues that they're facing, especially when it deals with the environment. I don't think that this is a federal government. I don't think it's a Supreme Court's role. I don't think it's any of those people up top because Congress is just a federal acting body. If you really want to see change that happens in any of these issues, you have to leave it to state government because they're going to be able to handle the issues and directly respond to certain things, even if it is political, even if it's political. Supreme Court is very political. I mean, it's Republicans controlling the Supreme Court. Same with Congress. I don't think that they're they're the right people to decide. Emissions in California uh, affect everyone because we all live in the same climate. That's fair, but emissions in California, if it's handled by the people that live in California who elect the state legislature of California, they're going to be better and able to enact certain measures that's going to impact California as a whole. California has forest fires. North Carolina doesn't have forest fires. California leads to more global warming issues than most of these other states. California has water drought issues. Most of our states don't have water shortage issues. California's had those same issues for the last two decades. I think that whenever you deal with certain states like that if you enact something big on a grandeur scale that's going to benefit those people more is going to benefit different states and is going to be advent disadvantageous to other states i don't think louisiana is as bad as california when it deals with any of these issues sure louisiana has more fracking but all the issues that deal with carbon emissions are directly impacting california more than any of the other states in the country because that's california they have more people they do more things and they have more problems and they always have had more problems even with the republican and democratic governors Ironically, it's going to be worse for Louisiana than it is for California, the same way it's worse for Alaska. I forget if it was a state (laughs) senator or it was the governor of Alaska after Palin, but I remember they said, we need to drill for more oil because climate change (laughs) is melting (laughs) part of Alaska, and therefore we need the oil revenues to deal with this. <laughs> and I just thought that was so ironic and funny. And I, Pratik, like I understand solution. what you were saying. Tyler has a really good point, fundamentally, that I agree with, which is there are certain issues that are interstate issues where we need a federal system to solve it, right? I totally empathize, though, with what you were saying about the states being testing grounds for things. 
Obviously, different states are going to need are, have different circumstances, and they should approach things differently. And I think they should be able to innovate the ways they want to innovate. However, I do think there needs to be a federal baseline for them to do that. And what this rule is doing is saying that, hey, look, this broad federal baseline that we were trying to get you know, going is not going to exist. And so I think that's part of, part of it. It's, it, it. But ultimately, the thing is, I'm not, I'm not even that upset about this because at the end of the day, I don't know if it should be EPA that ends up regulating this. I'm not sure they're the right body. Maybe it's FERC. Maybe it's another body. Maybe you get all the ISOs, the independent system operators, the different RTOs, the regional transmission organizations. Maybe you get those together. Like, for example, all the stuff that was happening in Texas with their blackouts, I mean, that is not an EPA issue. Um, Granted, you could say, well, greenhouse gases under the Clean Air Act, that is an EPA issue, and that would be totally fair. But ultimately, like you were saying, both of you have very good points. I just, the Louisiana and California one, Louisiana actually is one of those states where if you look at a map of Louisiana today and look at a map of it 50 years ago, the landmass of Louisiana is going away. <laughs> and unfortunately, um, because of a lot of their policies, a lot of them technical that they made engineering solutions like 150 years ago, it's going to keep going that route. So I, I got, I've got some sympathy for Louisiana, but in terms of like states that are really doing it better than California, I think that's like bottom of the barrel, just not the best state to pick. Okay. So, All right. Well, yeah. Mo- moving on. Actually, I don't. I want to skip the Bezos story. It's not as relevant. I want to hop into okay. gerrymandering, as I know, Pratik, you're feeling very passionate about gerrymandering today. So lay out the story so we can hash this out. <clears throat> All right. So the Supreme Court. They've always been obviously been doing a bunch of stuff everywhere recently. They've done more things in the last few weeks and last two weeks, and they've done probably in more like a lifetime impactful things. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but the Supreme Court is uh, is going to hear a case on GOP independent legislature theory that could radically reshape elections. The case stems from the North Carolina Supreme Court decision this year to throw out the Republican drawn congressional map for gerrymandering. Um, the key question here is that should the court be the best place to decide these redistricting battles? Or should the state legislature have absolute authority over gerrymandering? So I'm going to bring out a few details before we answer that question. So the first thing is that all these states generally do do gerrymandering. Each state government, doesn't matter if you're a red state or blue state, they've always engaged in these redistricting policies. That's part of what the state legislature does, whether we like it or not. So certain states like California and New York have always had been redistricting and have gerrymandering policies that have benefited the Democratic Party, and that's why Democrats have won in those states for many decades. And they have Republicans suing them in those states. Similarly, in red states, so like North Carolina, North Carolina, they have similar things, but North Carolina swings purple every now and then. They swing to have some Democrats win and some Republicans win. But what has happened is that they have these gerrymandering maps. They always look all goofy. And basically, the decision is is that whoever the party that's in power is, they're going to draw lines to basically benefit them so then they're able to win in the next election. This is a policy that has been happening in every single state. Whoever is a minority party has always sued the majority party over this whenever it's the Republicans because a lot of the people that are Democrats or a lot of the African-Americans 
that are Democrat generally vote Democratic. So they're arguing that is racist whenever Republicans redraw lines because they're being discriminatory. And on the other side, Demo whenever Democrats are gerrymandering, Republicans argue that you're not providing enough of a voice to the conservatives. You're, you know, reducing the voice of the rural communities and trying to give the people that live in cities a higher voice than they should have. So that's the politics behind it. So the main question I have is that should there be bipartisan neutral bodies that are deciding this stuff? Or should state legislatures that are elected by people within the states be able to decide, you know, who to elect for those people that are in the state legislature to be able to redraw these lines? So what are y'all's thoughts on this? Pratika, I just think it's funny. And Tyler, I do want to get your thoughts on this because I I don't have too many, you know, crazy opinions on gerrymandering here, but I think it's always funny when you kick off these segments about gerrymandering saying how Democrats did it and were winning and that was the only reason why they're winning. And whereas in reality, like if we're looking at federal elections, they always end up winning the popular vote. <laughs> and it's literally just business of the districts. Um, but that aside, I remember reading this book. It was called, uh, I don't know if I can say it on the show, it was called Rat Fucked. Uh, and that was in 2016 when that was published. And it's basically walking through Red Map, which was the redistricting majority project that the Republicans started spinning off after Obama won in office. And the Republicans basically went, oh, my God, we are losing these seats. The Democrats have majorities in like 27 states. We need to do something. What should we do about it? And their answer was, let's not convince more mo voters. Let's just gerrymander things. And that's how we'll win elections. And so I just think it's so funny that every time you introduce it, it's like, oh, it's the Democrats. It's them. And it's like, dude, the Republicans well, do the same thing. And I know you said they do the same thing, but like this is a concerted national effort and they were successful and they were better at it than the Democrats. And you got to give them props for it. And that's why it's such a big thing. That's that's why you hear the Democrats complain about gerrymandering is because the Republicans outmaneuvered them and did it better. You don't hear Republicans complaining about, you know, oh, the Democrats gerrymandered this district in California. It's, maybe you'll well, hear that like once or they twice have like we sued. just did. They, but. Have, uh, they have ongoing lawsuits over this stuff, though, in a lot of those blue states. So, like, California has had, like, three or four lawsuits pinned on them by Republicans for gerrymandering because they're complaining that they're not getting enough voice. And same in New York. The irony is, though, is that you tend to hear more of the Republican stories more than the Democratic stories. But I get your point. I'm a little bit biased. But I just wanted to lay out the story. No, I am too, and that's totally fair. <laughs> We've just heard so, different things. So as far as I could tell, I, I'm just going to take the opposite side of critique here. I'm still fleshing out what I actually believe on the matter. But you would rather, instead of having an impartial body look at something, which is the best we have in terms of getting a judgment that isn't super biased towards any one party or, or the other, even though it is to a degree, it, like no one's completely impartial, you're saying, screw it, it's corrupt. So because it's corrupt, we're just going to allow the people in power to do whatever they want. And then if people want to decide they want to vote for the other party, they can, in which case they will be able to corrupt it and make it so that the map fits their voting block and it'll help them win in the end of the day. And I like, how do you, yeah, Tyler, how do you be, how do you have it be truly neutral? How would oh, you ever have a truly I'm not, neutral body? I, oh, I'm not Unless you have like some computer program. I'm not saying it is, but I'm saying 
it's it's the best we have. Instead of saying, all right, guys, you are in power, and we're going to have another election. And you actually have the chance to redraw the map so you can continue winning those elections. I feel like that is the most biased you could possibly get. Having these state legis, It's like the police policing the police. It's like you're expecting the body to uphold the standards of like good voting practices to make sure it's not uh, th- th- there's no bias when in reality they're benefiting greatly from one map over the other. So it doesn't make much sense to me that these states should be policing themselves and we just go, look, you guys can vote in the other group if you want to and then you'll start winning. But the whole point of gerrymandering is the other group's not going to be voted in because you're dictating the maps. It's like a self-fulfilling cycle. So in my opinion and in my head and how I'm justifying it is I would rather have an as impartial a body as possible and the best we have is the courts and also why don't we have some ai just going all right we're going to randomly redistrict these maps i don't know that's another random solution but it just seems like having the legislators that benefit most from it being able to redraw the maps is just a little silly i see i think the problem is though is that there's no such thing as a neutral group of body and i didn't say there was i know but my point is with the court system you're voting for people, especially in all these other elections, apart from the Supreme Court, based on their color that's behind their name or their, you know, RD or whatever you call it. Well, the Supreme Court is obviously different, but you know that there's Republicans there that have a majority in the Supreme Court. So if things go from these red places to there and they have done redistricting, like I'm sure when North Carolina goes to the Supreme Court, they're going to say it's all good and dandy. We all know that. My point is, though, is that a lot of these states still have change that happens. Like, I'm sure in this next midterm elections, you're going to see a lot more Republicans that are going to win in office than there are Democrats, even in blue states. Likewise, in places that are Republican states right now, when the past, like, you know, during the midterm elections, whenever Trump was in office, you had a lot of Republicans lose in all these red states that have always been red in a lot of these red districts. I think that's part of the process, in my opinion. You're electing people. And the way you're making it so that you're actually having a voice in the government is whenever you elect these people onto the state legislature, they're going to draw these lines, Republican or Democrat. I could care less if it's a Democrat doing it or if there's a Republican doing it. I just think by principle, it makes more sense for the states to have that absolute authority over some other neutral body, which is a neutral, because the people themselves don't have that much of a say on those issues. While when it comes to redistricting, you're electing the bows those whether they're republican or democrat onto the state legislature so they have more of a direct say on what's going to happen in redistricting they know it's if the republicans have a majority they're going to gerrymander they know if democrats have a majority they're going to gerrymander and regardless of whatever your state you are in and whatever whatever you know state you're in whatever the situation is whether they're red or um, blue dominated They're still going to have that same policy because gerrymandering is what everybody does. When Republicans do it, Democrats call it racist because that's what they do. And whenever Democrats do it, whenever Republicans sue them or do certain things like that, the, the courts rule that Democrats are in the right because they're just drawing whatever they think is correct. I think that's the problem, though. There's not really a right or wrong answer. I don't think Republicans are wrong or Democrats are wrong. I just think that's the way the policy is, and I don't have a problem with it. Maybe I'm just too conservative. What are yeah, your I, thoughts, man? Yeah, yeah, Nick, do you have any, any thoughts on that? So I need to look into this more, but similar to how um, – what I just mentioned in terms of the popular vote is usually addressed and people say, oh, why don't we try out ranked choice voting? 
Um, one thing that you'll see floating around is multi-member districts. And essentially the sort of proportionality that you end up seeing in a lot of European countries, which would basically mean that for like if you look at Massachusetts in 2020, where Republicans got about 20 percent of the vote. OK, they got no representatives in Congress in Massachusetts in that year. Right. Um, but if you were to move to a multi-member district, they would at least have some representation. And it's basically saying, hey, look, a bunch of people ended up voting for Republicans. We should have some Republican representation in these districts. And the actual way that you end up you know, putting it together is a little complex. But essentially, it would not be one member per one district. You could have a couple. And so I think that would be an interesting solution. I haven't looked into it too much, but I just do think that there, there are a lot of smart people who are thinking through ways of how do we actually address this? Because I think it's been clear from the conversation so far that no matter how you slice it, fundamentally, if you're going with one person, one district, it's always going to be a little bit of a toss up and always pretty difficult. And then, of course, you get into, well, then how do we define the districts? How do we do it with the states? And it's just a tricky conversation. But I just wanted to point people to that multi-member districts. One thing to read up on, learn more about. Mm-hmm. And I, I just want to say one more time, um, I, I agree with the points Pratik's making, and there is really no true right answer here. I just would say, if you redistrict a map, you're only going to make it more difficult in the future to remove the representatives that redistrict the map. And it's it's just going to like, it's just the, it's just going to continue in that direction, no matter what you do. But you're right, like having the courts decide they weren't elected, and is that fair? Like, no, it's not fair. So, yeah, it's a tough issue. Oh, and one other thing was uh, I said the Republicans, uh, the Democrats had advantage 2020. Highly recommend looking that up because it was actually to target the fact that Republicans were aggressively redistricting and to then take back of the, take back control of those assemblies for the Democrats. So that's just a little funny. But the Republicans, of course, outspent them anyway. So um, the... The struggle continues. I just think that there's not a right answer. Again, I don't really blame the system. I just think the system is the way it is. Republicans and Democrats are going to fight over this stuff constantly. And that's a part of politics. If you decide to change something like that by having some some bipartisan body, the problem is that there's no such thing. So they're going to be partisan favoring one side or another. And when you do that, you're causing there to be more bias towards one side or another. Well, if you just let Republicans and Democrats fight it out in their gerrymandering battles, well, it's more, you know, Democratic than it is the other way around, in my opinion. I'd rather have me having the ability to vote people in because I know that they're going to gerrymander and them just to gerrymander. And if we lose, then the other side does it. It makes sense. I don't have a big <laughs> challenge with it. But that's the thing is like, if you look at it philosophically, as you said, the system is corrupt. Why continue to make it corrupt? I get it. But my point is that the system is corrupt and you're not going to be able to change it. So might as well just allow the system to continue to be corrupt and let all the other forces work around the corruption because you're not going to change it. Yeah, corruption. Let's just have more corruption (laughs) because there's already corruption. It makes sense to me. (laughs) I'm I'm not sure if I would uh, approach the argument in that way, but I do do agree that both sides do have a point here and that it's a tough issue. And like Nick was saying, a lot of smart people are looking into this and they have yet to come up with a really, really solid solution. And that says something. It's a tough issue to crack. But 
What's not tough to crack is Biden's brain, given that we all know it's failing. Um, so lately this week on the world stage, we had Biden come out, coming out, and instead of saying that uh, Sweden was going to be joining uh, NATO, he said that Switzerland was the country that was going to be joining NATO. Uh, this was a, a minor slip-up. He did catch himself after a little bit and then reverted that. But he's constantly on the world stage saying the wrong things. I mean, I get it. Both countries start with SW. I mean, like... I get it, man. But still, you're the president. You should get the names of countries right, especially when NATO is actually important at the moment and it symbolizes something more um, than than what it has in the past, like what with, with what's been going on in Ukraine and Russia, et cetera. So, you know, just another mistake, not a big mishap on the scale of Biden gaffes if we're rating it one to ten, low being uh, uh, not that bad of a gaff and high being a very bad gaff. It's probably a one or two. It's not much. But, you know, we do get this every single week, and I do consider that a gaff. So what are your guys' thoughts? I, I don't know if anybody's listened to this, though. I want people to, like, take the time and actually listen to what he talks about. Half the stuff Biden says, it's very confusing. I'm not I'm not even being biased towards a party or another. Trump did this kind of stuff too, where Trump just went off on his rants and started doing the same spiel that he did. But with Trump, you already know what he's going to say because he's going to make that same spiel. With Biden, it's like some written speech probably by some, you know, award-winning writer that's like trying to write this like, you know, perfect speech out. And he just says it in such a way where you're so confused. Like you don't understand what he's saying. Like you get the gist of it because there's other news articles that come out and basically summarize what Biden has said. But if you actually listen to the guy in his speeches, it's so confusing. And if you read any of his transcripts, man, they're even more confusing because they try to space it out like Biden said it. And I don't know, man. I just think this guy is a very unorthodox president because he says things and it doesn't make any sense, but he's still winning in all the Democratic presidential primary polls, even if Democrats don't want the guy. But regardless, he's better than all the other 26 options they got out there. And the one replacing him is Kamala Harris, which all of all most Republicans and Democrats are not big fans of Kamala Harris, but she's the female younger version and African-American version of Biden. Yeah, the, the party the party of diversity can only come up with an old senile white guy as their representative, and they, and, and they and they can't even switch it. They've had him; they know he's has no idea what he's doing, and they keep him there. What's going on, Nick? You know what? Uh, every every time we do this, it just uh, reminds me that I, you know, I would have voted for Biden again, and part of the reason is, I think synthesizing what's going on across the party and just saying like look i've got no strong opinions on this one particular thing i'm willing to hear what other people have to say on it and then hey if that sounds good let's do it i think that's one thing that i personally end up valuing however in times of crisis that absolutely is not something i value and so i think when times are good i think it's nice to have someone who listens to other people and compromises and brings people together. And I think if times were good, Biden would have been a good president. Hmm. But times are not good. And unfortunately, if you have someone who just constantly listens to advisors and the experts and, you know, I am science, I guess, with Fauci. Uh, but if you have someone who constantly defers to other people, it can definitely feel like, what are you doing here? What's the point of you being in power if you're not going to say, what you're thinking and what we should do. We put you into office. We didn't elect any of your advisors. We didn't elect any of the bureaucrats. 
We didn't elect any of these other people. We elected you. What do you think? What are you going to do? Fix my problems. Help the country out. And it's painful to say as a Democrat, but I'm not sure Biden has shown much on that front. And unfortunately, that's why people don't want him to run, is because as much as I really do think he would have been a solid president during okay times in this country, during good times, but during bad times, you need different leadership. And in the next four years, I'm just not sure if when the next primary comes around, I'm, I just don't think he would be a good candidate moving forward, regardless of whatever, like, you know, him losing his brain faculties or the puppeteering. I just think that him fundamentally as a person, when you build your whole career on compromise, it's not a good look for when times are this tough. You're, you're probably right, but also you did kind of vote for his advisors because no one going into it thought that Biden was going to be this, you know, this guy coming with his own policies, making his own decisions. We kind of knew that. It was more of a referendum on Trump. And look, Trump's gone, but we found something that's equal but opposite in terms of how ineffective it is in certain areas. And that's kind of what we've, we've seen with Biden. Well said, Tyler. All right, guys. Well, thank you for tuning in. It is about to be July 4th. Uh, Thank you for tuning in to episode 84 of Politicana, and we will catch you next week. Later.